You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. And today I'm here with Scott Drockletown, and we are doing a Q&A. Q&A. Won't Q&A? you take me to Drockletown? Please keep it formal. I will only have a serious tone in this program going forward. Okay, great. I want us to be the picture of credibility, academia, yeah, and uh, workplace appropriateness. <laughs> I mean, when I think workplace appropriateness, <laughs> my face it appears. Does. That's the image. That's in the documentation from Sherm. Uh, yes, yes, it's in the Sherm documentation. <laughs> Sherm wants me to be their celebrity representative. Sure. I've I've said no. Yeah. Well, you're too busy being appropriate. You exactly. Know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You, that I, takes up most of your time. It does. It takes up most of my time and effort. Ashley, yes. it's crazy you said that because it is very topical to what we're talking about today for the Q&A. We're going to be talking today about how how addiction sneaks up on you. And we wanted to title this episode, How Addiction Comes in the Back Door. We did, but that and was we not still HR approved. Might, but it was not HR approved. We weren't sure the graphic designer would be willing to put the image on the episode for that. Sure. So here sure. we are. So Ashley, I know this is something that you have mentioned to me before, but I think it is always helpful for people who are in recovery to hear that they're perfectly normal if addiction is still looking for a way in, using lots of different pathways, checking a window down the chimney like Santa Claus, you know, (laughs) it's trying to get in. Can you describe this phenomenon in your own words? Yes. So one of the things that I talk about a lot are all the different ways that other obsessions, compulsions can take people out, meaning can cause them to relapse. The one I talk about and have talked about on this podcast is how my struggles with eating disorder have put me in harm's way as it relates to my addiction, my alcoholism. And even being sober many, many years, the thinking is still there. Scott and I were joking about how, you know, when I first got sober, I was taught I needed to discard my first five ideas immediately. And then we could start working with ideas six and seven, maybe. Otherwise, I just needed to use other people's ideas because my instincts were all off. And that's what happens when you are in active addiction for long enough is that your instincts are based on self-preservation in a world that is very different from the normal, I'm using air quotes, normal world of people who are not using. So for example, your instinct 
instinct while you're in active addiction is that everyone is trying to get something from you because usually that's the case. You get sober. If you keep that instinct, you're not going to have a lot of friends and you're not going to do very well in society because if you keep the instinct, everyone is always trying to get something from you. You are never really able to make connection, which is a very important part of being sober. So we have to learn to rewire our brains and discard some of the first ideas we have that may instinctually be rooted in our diseased mind state. I still have to discard at least my first thought. My first thought is typically no bueno. And I I say that because my first thought is typically like mildly diseased. For example, when COVID hit and everybody was losing, you know, and people who were well, who had COVID were losing their sense of taste and smell. I was not saying it out loud, but I was hopeful that when I got COVID, that I would lose my sense of taste and smell and not gain them back. And then forever, I would only eat for health. This was, (laughs) this was, that was the plan. As everyone was at home, right? Exactly. That was the first thought, right? The next, the following thoughts were getting closer and closer to Sherm approved. For those of you who don't know what Sherm is and my my bad jokes, Sherm stands for Strategic Human Resource Management, but it's also the Society for Human Resources. You're in on the joke now. Now you're in. Isn't it exciting? (laughs) Aren't you happy? (laughs) Society for Human Resources Management, Sherm. Okay. Again, as you're sober longer, theoretically, you get to the healthier thoughts, instincts faster. But in the beginning, that's not the case. So why is that dangerous? Well, a lot of the time, my bad thoughts disguise themselves as good ideas. So I had a friend who went to a bar, ordered a non-alcoholic drink. She was not sober very long and knew that she probably shouldn't be in that bar. And that if she told her folks in sobriety that she was there, that they would not be happy with her. The drink came. It turned out it was accidentally alcoholic. She drank it. She realized it had alcohol in it. She put the drink down. She was extremely triggered by the fact that the alcohol went into her body. And because she felt like the first decision she had made was a bad decision, i.e. going into the bar and ordering this non-alcoholic drink, her brain told her that now this had to be a secret. And then since it was going to be a secret, it could also be a secret that she finished the drink. So now she's had the drink. Well, now she leaves the bar. Her thought is, well, I've already had a drink. It's already a secret. I can't tell anyone. I might as well keep going. This is the sneaky part of it, right? Then, of course, she gets loaded. And I've heard stories like that people who have a back surgery or have some sort of surgery and they're taking a medication as prescribed for the pain, then they decide to take an extra one because it'll just feel a little that much better. And then they realize, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. I can't tell anyone. Well, if I can't tell anyone, so on and so forth. And so one of the themes here is secrecy. Secrecy is a dangerous thing to play with. But the other theme is this idea that, well, I'm already X, I might as well X, I might as well Y. I've seen that a lot where people, you know, they feel like, well, I already, you know, did something that's questionable. I might as well go and do all these other things. And then that turns into this huge blazing wildfire. And our thoughts are the things that start that process. 
in 12 step, we talk about no defense against the first drink, you know, insert whatever your drug of choice is with that. All that knowledge, all all the things that you know, all the progress you have made will not stand between you and using that drink or drug. But what will are the things that you do, the recovery behaviors you do on a daily basis to maintain. So the network that you create, that you can pick up the phone and call, the places you put yourself in, learning to discard your first, second, third, fourth, whatever, however many you need to discard thoughts until you get to the safe one. If you do not do those things, then when you come to that place of no defense against the first drink or drug, you will take that first drink or drug. And then after that, you will lose the ability to make choices because after that first drink or drug, we we lose the ability to, to make a choice around it. And I think that is something I see all the time where this process of a relapse, because relapse is a process, not an event, begins with the breaking down of the community, the isolation, secrecy, and then accepting and being convinced that our bad ideas are actually fine. Let me dig into that a little bit. There's a part that I get stuck there and I'm I'm wondering how you can help people out of this situation because one of the things that you're talking about there like that would be the most challenging is is if you've built up any kind of status or like you know, prestige in, let's say, sobriety circles, something like that. So like an instance I'm thinking of is like Dak Shepard. So it's like he's built this huge following. He's very public about his recovery. He's he's built this huge following. There's these people who count on him. They're looking to him and his show for hope, things like that. And then when things go wrong, there's this temptation to cover it up, right? Because I think maybe that's part of the story sometimes people tell themselves is like, maybe part of it is the status that they've achieved. But I think that there's this other part of it that goes, well, all the people I'm going to let down if I if I come forward about this, if I share this information. So are there things that would help somebody in that situation navigate or not feel like they're trapped maybe by their circumstance or their position or their status or things like that? Are there things that can be protective when addiction is sneaking around trying to find a way in? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that example. So when Dax Shepard has an episode on his podcast that's titled Day 7, and he published that after having a relapse after you know 15 years or something of sobriety. And I cried listening to that episode, not because he lost his time, but because I felt so much admiration and pride and so much compassion for him. And again, admiration for doing, coming out and doing that and saying that and talking about it because I could picture myself easily in that, in all the feelings and all the examples that he gave in terms of what happened. And I I could easily picture it. I was so impressed. I can't begin to tell you how much respect I have for that. I think that is precisely the point was that he was afraid and he talks about this. He was afraid of what other people in sobriety were going to think of him if he relapsed and talked about what happened. 
And the reality was I couldn't have been more impressed with him coming out and saying that. Not because I, you know, think it's great that he relapsed, but that him coming out and just being honest and saying it and sharing it with the world and taking us along that ride with him was so admirable. I had so much respect because I know how hard that is and I know what that feels like. And and so I think that's the thing that I'm reminded of when I personally think about people who stand up and, and have to admit a weakness. In 2021, I took 15 years sober while in a treatment for 30 days because my mental health and eating stuff was suffering to the point where I was afraid I was going to drink and use. My thought was in my head was if I do not tell my people, my family that I am not okay and that if this, if I continue in this feeling state for much longer, I am not going to be able to withstand. I am going to have no defense against the first drink. I knew that. I absolutely knew that. And so instead of doing what I wanted to do, which was just grip my teeth and go on and hopefully it wouldn't happen, I told my family, like, I am not okay and I need help. And I need it now so that I can not get to that place where I have no defense. And that was so humbling. Oh, it was painful and humbling. And so, you know, talking about it, I talked about it on the podcast. I, my kids saw it, all the things. And I took 15, you know, I stayed sober. I think the piece that people miss about what they believe they've built up with society is that society respects people who own their shit. Society respects people who are honest about what's going on. And so when you have status or whatever it is, in many ways, I think you're missing, you know, if status is what you're worried about, you're missing an opportunity to build it because people want to relate to you and they don't relate to perfection because none of us is perfect and they relate to the bumpy ride that is recovery. And so the people who have no challenges during recovery, you know, it's like that saying that calm seas don't make a good sailor. Calm sobriety is not going to make your sobriety bulletproof. What makes it strong is having to ride the waves of what comes along in life. And so I encourage people. And I, I think the more of us who stand up and say, I almost relapsed. I did this. I did this really stupid shit in sobriety and almost lost my, you know, whatever it is that people, they relate to that and they can say, oh my God, I almost did that too. Or God, I had that thought the other day. I had that thought. I was hoping I would get COVID and never eat again and whatever it is, whatever your, whatever your dysfunctional thoughts are and that they relate to that. And then they see that there's another way and maybe they either avoid the mistakes that the person with status made or they learn from the path and take the same path to getting better. I always admire that you bring those things up about yourself. But I also think that there's a benefit to that in the fact that like it worked out. You were able to get the help you need and continue. What would be some things that you would tell yourself or some thoughts that might help you, let's say, in the aftermath of something like that, where it's like the thing you were worried about happening happened, like you didn't catch it and you still are having those feelings where it's like, but I have these responsibilities and I have people who are counting on me and I, you know, I want to be a role model and I want to, you know, like, are there things that you would tell yourself? self 
in in the after, you know, in the me um, personally, like what yeah. I would. Yeah. yeah. So me personally, just taking what I would do, I would go to my most trusted circle and I would say I would tell them the truth of what happened. And I would tell them I need help. I would tell them I need help even if I didn't want the help. I would tell them I need help and I don't want it just so that they knew because as soon as I want it, they know how to help me. And again, like full transparency, the more transparent you are in many ways with your, you know, doesn't need to be with the whole world, but like with that close circle. So I would go, I'd probably go to my best friend first and she would help me figure out what to do and how to tell other people, you know, how to tell my husband, how to tell my, you know, what to do. And I would, you know, let's, let's just say that I relapsed and then I got stable. So now I need to tell everyone, but I'm like three days sober or whatever it is. Yeah. I would own it because I I would say, look, this is what happened and this is what I did. And this is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Will you support me? Here's how you can support me. And I would get with my closest friends who for me have been in recovery a long time. If you're someone who that's not the case, I would find people who've been in recovery a long time and know how to clean up a relapse. I have a lot of friends who know how to clean up a relapse and I would figure out what went wrong. And so I've talked about this before, but Terrence Gorski, he has a relapse prevention workbook. In that workbook, you can get on Amazon, it talks about mapping a relapse and it helps you figure out where the relapse started. And it's, you know, typically starts months and months and months before the event. And so I would do work around that. And I would ask the people around me what they need from me in order to continue and rebuild trust. And then I would do those things and I would get sober again. I would get sober the way I got sober before, which was by taking the advice of other people, showing up, suiting up and showing up regardless of what my head's telling me. I would, you know, we call it having smart feet. I would have smart feet. My head will tell me all sorts of stuff, but my feet will take me to the meetings, to the places that I need to go. And that, you know, I would create smart feet again and I would do all those things. And for me, my experience, while it seems like it turned out okay, you know, in theory, like I didn't relapse. That's true. But that was damaging to my family. There was damage done by asking for help and getting help. And I was very afraid of that damage. And I certainly had to clean it up with my family. And so, you know, yes, I did not pick up a drink or a drug. That is true. But it didn't heal me. It helped me. It stopped me from being so dysregulated that I was going to, you know, drink or use, but it was not without its consequences. And it was not without, even though I say all the things I'm saying, it was not without, I had shame. I had shame. I had feelings. I felt I was embarrassed. I felt guilt. Sometimes still deal with that with my kids who will struggle with when I leave and, you know, when are you coming back? And they want all the details. Like there's still stuff there. But again, I would trade all of that. I made the right decision. That was the right decision. And for me, there were two decisions. There was to ask for help or not ask for help and get loaded. And I knew that. So those were the two decisions. There wasn't like a happy gray area or a third option. I would have chosen if there had been a nice third option, I would have chosen it. I just didn't, that wasn't on the table. And so I worked with the decisions that I had in front of me and I made the one that made the most sense. Managing our ego in recovery is so... (laughs) 
difficult and painful. Ego is it is one of the things that I personally work on in my recovery so much. And you can have your ego can also be the thing that tells you you're a piece of shit. Ego doesn't necessarily mean it's telling you you're great. It can also be telling you what a piece of shit you are. And either way, any direction, that is something that the skills learned in recovery help you manage so that you don't have to seek that destructive relief anymore. So I think maybe to close this one, my mind just keeps going to this analogy, right, of like a house. And I think about in my house at night when we go to bed is my responsibility. I go around, I check all the windows, I lock all the doors, I check everything again, I make sure the lights are going to turn on, all the things that need to turn on, do all that sort of stuff. If we're drawing that analogy maybe to your own mind, what are the rituals or what are the practices or what are the tools that you use to do those checks and create as safe a space for my mind as possible? Like how, how do you do that? Yeah, I like to think of it as health insurance. You pay for your health insurance. That doesn't mean that you go out and try to get hurt because you have health insurance. You're still trying to avoid using the insurance, but you have it and you maintain it. You continue to pay into it. You make sure it's up to date because God forbid you need it, it's there. And so the things that you do daily, weekly, monthly, yearly in recovery are all payments into that insurance, that recovery insurance policy. Things like calling people, asking how other people are doing, aka getting out of yourself, going to meetings or some sort of recovery-related support group, working with others, therapy, journaling, meditation, prayer, whatever that looks like for you, some sort of spiritual connection. Again, that can be spirituality, can be doing yoga, can be going on a run, can be being in nature, going camping, going surfing, whatever. People have connection different ways and creating opportunities for relief that are healthy and staying connected. Isolation takes a huge toll on that insurance policy. And so just staying connected is such a huge piece of getting all those other things because the more connected you are, the more other people will pull you into things. They will, oh, I'm doing this. Do you want to go do this? And then those activities, those interactions, those opportunities to pay into that insurance policy, they show up at your doorstep and then you don't have to work as hard for them. And so that connection is really, really key to that, those, those daily things. But I mean, the truth is that being connected to other people that are doing the same thing that you're doing, sticking with the winners, finding people who have what you want and doing what they do, all of those things will get you to where you want to go. And how you do that, whether you do it through 12-step or smart recovery or she recovers or, you know, community or how the intricate details of how you make that happen can vary. But ultimately, the community, the connection, exercise, spiritual connection, again, that can be so many different things, eating well, getting out of yourself, doing things for others, and then, all you know, with also self-care, that's the recipe. And that recipe needs to be done on in the beginning a daily basis. And then, you know, it, it's divvied up differently over time on a weekly basis, but a regular basis. And then you're paying into that insurance policy. 
In that vein, if you are struggling and you need community and you have no idea where to find it, where to look, you can always go to lionrock.life and there is a community there. There's a 12-step community there that you can join. There's also a non-denominational community called Community. That is a program where, you know, it's it's spiritual, but it, there's no God language and people are recovering in all different ways. So the, the idea is that you define your recovery. We don't define it for you. And there's so many amazing people doing amazing recovery work there. I highly suggest checking it out. So that's at lionrock.life. If you are looking for a community and want to start to build that connection so that you have that insurance policy. You can also reach out to me for suggestions at podcast at lionrock.life and I will happily offer you suggestions and advice, anything I can do to be useful. As always, thank you for listening. I hope this was helpful. Please feel free to email us with questions, ideas for Q&As. We love to hear from you. See you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.